Hello, film fans, and welcome to A Very Good Year, a new podcast where we invite a guest, a filmmaker or writer or actor or musician, anyone really who loves movies, to pick their favorite year of movies and to talk to us about that year. I'm Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host... Michael Hall. Uh, really excited about our guest this week, uh, who is the film critic for Slate, where she also co-hosts their weekly cultural podcast, The Culture Gab Fest. Uh, she also frequently hosts the Slate Spoiler Special, which is a spoiler-heavy podcast on current movies. And she is the author of one of my favorite books of the year, which is Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema, and The Invention of the 20th Century. Folks, here's Dana Stevens. Hi, Dana. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I was uh, I did actually a, a book promo podcast myself yesterday, and I was saying, you know, the, the book promo circuit, it never ends. The tour never actually ends. The book is evergreen. You will talk about the book forever. So uh, when we were making this preliminary list, I said, well, we got to get Dana on because she's got to talk about the book. And, uh, Lucky and... for me, I never get tired of talking about Buster Keaton. Seriously, <laughs> it's, it's an ever-renewing resource because there's always something new to see, something new to say, and somebody out there who hasn't discovered him yet. So, Exactly. And so when, when I reached out to you and said, you know, pitched you the, 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 the premise and said, you know, so what year would you want to do? Um, you actually gave me a choice of a couple, and I said, let's do this one so that we can also talk about the book in the process. So, Dana, what year did you select for your very good year, and why? Yes, this was a great treat to be asked to think about favorite years in movies, and there's so many different possible answers. And like you said, sure. the two the two I initially floated to you were 1954 and 1927, both of which have some of my favorites in them and are just kind of pivotal movies in film history for various reasons. And we ended up going with 27 for a couple reasons, because I just wrote this book about Buster Keaton, so I get of to course. bring that in. And because I just, I, I feel in general, like in appreciation of film, even from cinephiles, from a place, a very niche podcast like this, silent film often gets a very short shrift, you yep. know, and there's tons of people who are just huge movie heads who still don't have much background in silent film and feel that it's somehow too difficult or too inaccessible. And I just wanted to be somebody who brought the fun, you know, and the sense yeah. of weirdness and diversity and electricity that there is in in researching silent film. So I hope that this show will, will get that message across. I, th I love that idea. I love that. And, and I think... It's also a year that I do, you know, when, when we first started talking about this and sort of the, the years that people might go for, it is one of the ones that had occurred to me just because I think there's a feeling among those who know silent film well and who know this, this period well that it was a particularly high watermark, um, mainly because of what came immediately after. So it, in the interest of sort of situating listeners who may not be as familiar with that history, why is this kind of a pivotal year in terms of, of silent film and what came after? Right. I mean, the classic film history textbook answer on that would be because this is the year that sound film came in. It's the year right. that the jazz singer was released in the fall and changed film history. And there's a lot of qualifications there we could get into yes. if we were wading <laughs> into the technological weeds because, you know, jazz singer is not the first film to use synchronized sound. It's not also not fully using synchronized sound. That Synchronized sound was something that had been coming for a while. You know, yeah. and it had a few blips on the horizon before 1927. And by 1927 was kind of clearly in progress, including in some of the 
movies we'll talk about, like Seventh Heaven, a movie that we'll talk about today, was released early in 1927 with non-synchronized sound. In other words, whatever musician was in the theater would accompany it in the way they saw fit. And later that year came out with a synchronized track, which you know you can still still hear on it now. So that was already one of those transitional movies. But 27 was just a really transitional year in that way and um, and was the moment that many performers, including Buster Keaton, who I just wrote this book about, you know, signed over, started to move into the world of sound pictures, even if they didn't make their first one that year. Um, right. And and as a result of that, it has this poetic, and you'll see this in many, many, you know, film textbooks and film writing about, about this year and about the late silent era. 1927 has this very poetic, tragic kind of feel about it mm. where silent film was just kind of reaching the pinnacle of its artistry in movies that we'll talk about like Sunrise and Metropolis today at the very moment that it was going to be shut down, you know, so it was starting to discover all the things that it could do and the subtleties that it could explore and... At the beginning of sound, it seemed like maybe there would be a dual track. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of the big executives, a lot of powerful people in the film industry, including Irving Thalberg, you know, who would go on to work with Keaton, thought that that sound was a flash in the pan, you know, or it was something that would exist for right. a while, but it would always be alongside the great artistry of silent films. And in fact, just the opposite turned out to be true. There was an incredibly violent transition and within a couple years there were no more theaters that showed silent movies there were no more studios that made silent movies so it was this swan song you know the year 1927 yeah. and there's a lot of beauty to be found in that moment i agree yeah and it's and it is it's remarkable you know this idea that like that they had just sort of cracked what visual storytelling could be that you know that that there were ways that you could tell a story on film in in a in a purely visual sense that is rendered beautifully in so many of the movies that we're going to talk about today and that there were directors who who were loath to let go of that who felt like they were just kind of getting their arms around the form um a couple episodes ago we had Alex Winter on and he picked 1931 and what was fascinating about his picks for that year were that three of them were basically silent movies mm -hmm. like they were um you know, they were ones that, where they had made accommodations with like synchronized, but you know, but they were not dialogue heavy talkies because there, there, it really does feel like filmmakers didn't want to embrace this novelty, really. And there was some feeling that that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, nobody knew how to tell those stories yet, you know, right. which is which is a good reason. I'm very curious to hear Alex Winter's show now because that's 1931 is a year in film that I almost feel like when I think about it, especially in American film, you know, foreign films were often still silent then. You know, a lot of great Japanese silence were made well into the 30s and si and Chaplin kept making silent films into yep. the, the 30s. Um, but when I think about those very early 30 films, I have this oh, very yeah. de depressed, boxed in kind of feeling. Oh, right? yes. I mean, yes. just that, that brief period, which I write about in the book some, where... You know, studios were these hot enclosed spaces with no windows because the lights had to be bright and you couldn't go outside. And, you know, the dialogue feels very canned. And there's there's a really claustrophobic feel to some of those very early talkies. And then very quickly after that, you know, in pre-code and, you know, discovering screwball and everything, suddenly that kind of film starts to open up and feel free in a different way. But, yeah, there's there's certainly a moment and Keaton was trapped right in it where the the studio closing down around actors and the open air filming yep. shutting down felt just just felt like a trap 
Yes. I should note, unsurprisingly, your instincts are quite good. Uh, f- the, the films on his list are four foreign films and a chaplain. Mm-hmm. So, so oh, there you go. <laughs> so curious. So curious what yeah, they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I should also mention before, and we'll, we'll, we're going to do headlines here in a sec. I should mention, because we bonded over this on Twitter once, listeners who are, who are really interested in this pivot, in this hinge moment in history, in this transition from silent to sound cinema, I know we both leaned heavily on the book uh, the Speed of Sound by Scott Amon um, was was a key text for me, and you mentioned that that you would enjoy it as well. That's I think kind of the the, the definitive book in terms of understanding from both a technical and a business standpoint this moment of transition in cinema history. Yeah, in fact, I looked at it a little bit in preparation, over preparation for our discussion tonight. <laughs> but I love The Speed of Sound; it's so readable. Yeah. It's a great yeah. example of just a film history that is so page turny, you know, yeah. and that that documents this uh, an idea really. It's the history of an idea, which is the idea of what an act of violence it was on the film industry at that moment to perpetrate the turn to sound, you know, and what that did to various people's careers, and you know what it did to the economy of the film industry, and it's all just beautifully told um, by by Scott Amon. So yeah, I'm, I'm constantly recommending that book to people. Yeah, great, great book. All right, Mike, let's hear a little bit about what was happening in the world outside of the movie house in 1927. Here's headlines. You will not be surprised to hear that it was really reflective of sort of a hinge era, right? Of the end of one sort of, of po- point in time in our culture and technology and politics and sort of uh, there was a lot of uh, of early sort of adopter things that were happening in 1927. Um, for one thing, Stalin took over the Soviet Union completely and exiled Trotsky, so that would have some ramifications. Uh, the People's Liberation Army was formed in China, and the public speaking ban that had been laid on Adolf Hitler uh, after the Beer Hall Pooch was lifted. So none of that is great. Um, there's a lot of sort of Bad dangerous headlines. things happening, you know, don't happening like these in the headlines, Mike. world. Right. Don't like this week's um, headlines. I understand. Within the United States, uh, our economy is booming. You know, we're still in the, the roaring 20s period. We haven't actually had the, the stock market crash yet. Unemployment is under 5%, which is something you won't hear again until basically <laughs> we started engaging with those other international headlines I just brought up before. Right. Um, And, you know, but there's also segregation is still the law of the land. Uh, Jim Crow is everywhere. The struggles for civil rights is gaining traction. Um, Sacco and Vanzetti were executed in 1927 um, because we were very scared of revolution coming to the United States. But along with the economy, there was, you know, people who were there was a lot of of, uh, engagement with labor. Um, and there was starting to be pushback against that. You know, this is when we started to hear talk about the eight hour work week and having a weekend and having child labor laws and sort of a lot of things that have come to define our, our economy since then. Um, but six striking miners were murdered at the Columbia, Columbine mine in Serene, Colorado, um, under the International Workers of the World banner. And that was also something that we were going to see more of. Um, okay, let's enough of enough of all the terrible shit that was about to happen. In 1927, it was also full of very exciting things that seem really foundational. Now, the Holland Tunnel opened up in New York City. CBS started um, started out as a radio broadcaster, um, but Philo Farnsworth invented, like, actually, finally perfected the electronic television in that year as well. Obviously, it'd be a while before it was household, um, but he did actually pull it off that year. Um, some shitty Nazi flew from New York to Paris for the first time. 
And yep. uh, the Ford Model A came out. And also the first Volvo rolled off the line. So you're starting to see competition in, in automobiles. So that's what I mean about like these are really early things that would come to define our lives up until now. Um, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and the Yankees won the World Series. The Chicago American Giants won the Negro League World Series. Gene Tunney defended the heavyweight crown against Jack Dempsey after the famous long count in the seventh round, which you can still see and you should watch. It's as exciting as a movie. Uh, Whiskery <laughs> won the, the Kentucky Derby. And the first World Cup was not until 1930. So in a huge disappointment to human civilization that had been ongoing for 200,000 years at this point, there was not a World Cup in 1927. This is just going to be your hook, right? That the, the, the World Cup is, is somehow important and I'm, I'm supposed year, to care about it? Well, partially it's just because I know it annoys you, but also any given year on the earth is at least 30% better if there's a World Cup. So okay. it's defining for many people in the world, if not you. And there's headlines. Thank you, Mike. You know, before we move on from headlines, I was just going to say that a couple of the things Mike mentioned actually figure prominently into some of these movies, in particular Metropolis, which is probably the most overtly political of the movies that we'll be talking about. I mean, both the rise of Hitler in Germany, right, is is deeply entrenched with the history of and the and the after story of the movie Metropolis, and also all of these questions about you know um, a, a looming depression, you know, economic instability. I mean, Weimar Germany is very much the subject of Metropolis, and that's the moment that, that we're in um, that, that Mike describes in, in those headlines. So Beautiful. All right. Well, we love that. We love when, as, as we both uh, know from the books that we've written, we love when the real world ties into the movie world. It's very um, topical. It's almost 100 <laughs> years old, but it's topical. Topical indeed. All right, Dana, let's do your top five. And, uh, and we ask every week, we say, okay, you know, we let everyone pick the order they want to do. Some do a ranked list, some do chronological, alphabetical, autobiographical, thematic. Dana, what determined the order of the five films as we'll hear them today? Well, because as people who follow my criticism and my top 10 list every year know, I'm not a ranker. I really just have <laughs> such a hard time. This is why my sight and sound poll is still not finished that I'm supposed to be submitting, <laughs> I believe, tomorrow or the next day uh, for that for that publication, because I don't know how to rank things. I cannot quantify yeah. art. So instead, what I'm going to do is I rank them in order of how important I think it is that a listener who's unfamiliar with all of them um, see them. So I basically put Beautiful. the movie that you absolutely must see at the top and descending down to, I mean, all of these would be great to see and, you know, and would sh hopefully lead you to lots more related great movies. Um, but my ranking for now is, yeah, if you had to see just one, this great. one in descending order. That's No, that's one, because now we have another kind of ranking, which is the urgency ranking. Perfect. Right. <laughs> all right. So ranked in order of urgency, Dana, what is your uh, number one most important 1927 movie? All right. Well, here, I mean, here you're going to see the bias of a person who just spent almost six years writing a book on Buster Keaton that just came out this year. It's The General, which I know that some Keaton heads are going to be popping up and saying, that's a 1926 movie, which is how Wikipedia lists it. It is true that it was shot in 1926, and I believe it opened in Tokyo in late 1926, but the American opening date was early 27. To me, it's a 1927 movie because that's the movie, it, the year it made an impact on the world. Damn it, we're Americans. It's an American podcast, <laughs> and we go by the American release date. And uh, I, I put the general there on top of movies that one must see just simply because, I mean, certainly of all Keaton's movies, it doesn't happen to be my personal favorite, although I think it's, you know, a, a masterpiece and a brilliant mm -hmm. movie, one of his best. It may not be my, my personal favorite 
one of his movies, but I think it is probably the one that most purely expresses his sensibility, a sensibility yeah. that nobody else ever expressed on film. Uh, it's technically maybe his greatest achievement, uh, yeah. you know, because of his use of these giant props, you know, these two steam trains chasing each other across the countryside. And it's one of the very few silent movies that often makes it onto lists of the greatest movies of all time, which I'm hoping it will on this this sight and sound list that's upcoming. Sure. Right? I mean, one of my goals you, you, in, in you being You are able being to honored. influence that. Yeah, exactly. One of my <laughs> goals is to try to play my cards right so that the general makes an appearance on that list. Again, not because it is necessarily, if I could call it down from heaven, you know, the Keaton film right. I would put on that list, but it's the best known one, the most frequently screened one, the one that's the most likely to be seen by the, the biggest number of people. So that's why I'm, I'm placing it here as well. And yeah. uh, I mean, what can you really say about The General? Like The General is one of those utterly idiosyncratic movies that seems to have sprung full-blown from the mind of its creator. You know, um, it is probably the moment that Keaton was able to make a movie in exactly the way he wanted to the purest mm -hmm. degree he ever was with the highest budget he ever had yes. access to. And in fact, his budgets were quickly shut down after that because of what a enormous sprawling and expensive shoot the general was. Um, you know, a vision of American history that is utterly unique to him, um, that it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with actual Civil War history, and I think is a real mistake to try to map against, you know, traditional sure. ways of thinking about the Civil War, like arguments that it's, for example, a lost cause movie because he happens to play a Confederate soldier right. seem to me completely misplaced. If anything, the movie could be critiqued for being too apolitical and not having any message about the Civil War, you know, or war itself, for that matter. Right. Um, and what it really is about, I think, is an individual who's caught up in history almost obliviously, unknowingly, right. despite himself, you know, and uh, and that the the Civil War, which is kind of beautifully recreated in every detail, right, to, to the degree that this movie looks like Matthew Brady photographs of the war for long stretches, um, yeah. is is purely a backdrop against this story that is about... Um, one man's personal struggle to win back his beloved train. So I feel like what it really is about, in a way, is man's relationship to technology, you know, and um, and human relationships on a small scale playing themselves out against history as a as a huge backdrop. But what it is most amazingly, I think, is just you know one of the great prop comedies and one of the great yes. the great chase movies of all time. I mean, I've yes. talked so much about the general in the past few months, and I've screened it alive in front of a lot of audiences with the book release, along with you know live musical accompaniment and packed theaters, and it's such an incredible thrill to see how this movie that is nearly 100 years old still just plays like plays. absolute gangbusters right yes yes it's you know because and it's because in so many ways it is sort of a prototype for what we now think of as like the action comedy like that it's that the it's, fast and the furious of its day is it not yes it's, it's <laughs> i mean it it moves like a bullet it's exciting the 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 stunts are are extremely convincing and thrilling but it's funny and ingenious and you always feel that the comedy and the action are serving each other i do feel like it's one where you know the when i first saw it as sort of a budding buster fan as a teenager or whatever you know of course i'm taken with and with his performance and you know i'm looking at it as a buster keaton movie the more i've seen it as i've grown older the, you're right. The technical achievement, the, the 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 volume and scope of what he's doing and how he's using that budget and how yes, it was an expensive movie, but my God, every dollar of it is up on the screen. 
Right. I mean, there's not a sense in that movie, although his he lost in some ways control of his his um his own production, not his entire company with that movie. That would right. happen a few years later. But you know, his degree of control over the production because of um because of how many stunts he tried to do in that movie that were utterly over the top like the famous right. sequence of the bridge collapsing at the end yes. which cost forty thousand dollars right i forget what that is in today's money but it was the most expensive shot in silent film up to that time you know and Amazing. Um, was both sort of uh you know a history maker reputation maker and also a rep- reputation ruiner and something that in <laughs> what in sort of what we thought of as sort of a proto heaven's gate moment you know started right. to, to usher him out of that position of power in in the film industry started to make independent film in general kind of um, less of a freewheeling enterprise than it had been throughout the 20s you know so yes. maybe part of the beauty of the general again is that it has this swan song kind of feeling yes. you know I don't think that Keaton was ever that free on a set before and I absolutely love the set photos of the making of the general there's a whole lot of them because you know the entire town of Cottage Grove Oregon where the film was being shot on location <laughs> was constantly following Keaton around with cameras they were so excited that this big movie was being shot in their town and uh, and when you see him on the set of that movie just barely I think he was 30 years old maybe he hadn't even oh. turned 30 you know and wow. just at the top of his craft perfectly happy you know doing what he wanted to do and the way he wanted to do it um, it's 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 just wonderful to see see an artist kind of fulfilling their vision to the degree that he does in that movie so it doesn't have to be my favorite Keaton for me to just feel a special connection with it Agreed. Agreed. Beautiful. A perfect, perfect first pick. Dana Stevens, what is your number two movie for 1927? All right. So here we are really going canonical. This is another of the rare, rare silence that often makes it to lists of the greatest movie of all time up there with the sound films. And that is F.W. Murnau's Sunrise from 1927. When we talked early on about um, silent film reaching this artistic pinnacle in 1927, you know, and that it was going to be cut down in its prime like this blossoming cherry tree. Right. It's this movie that I'm thinking of in particular yeah. because, I mean, maybe you can ex- examine, extrapolate a little bit on why, but Sunrise is so simple in its construction. It's the first American film of F.W. Murnau who's brought over from Germany specifically because, you know, he's bringing artistic cachet. He's bringing yeah. this kind of European eye that, you know, that American studios are really, really interested in, but don't quite know what to do with. And right. uh, and he's, he's brought over after making... Uh, you know, um, Faust and I mean, all of these sort of grand German um, visionary movies. And he makes this incredibly simple story of a love triangle, Sunrise. It's not simple cinematically. I mean, as you see when you watch the movie, it's an incredible work of craft and all of these forced perspective sets had to be built to create these very specific effects that he wanted to make. He was unbelievably exacting in the way that he made the movie. But the story it tells is so simple it could be from a fairy tale, right? I mean, the characters almost don't need names. I'm not sure if they have names. It's it's the woman from the city, you know, the man from the country and the wife of the man from the country. And it's the very simple love triangle of this man being sort of tempted away by the city temptress spending a night having these um, urban adventures with her and then in the end kind of going back after this very dark moment when he contemplates killing his own wife right in a very suddenly last summer kind of setup uh, he ends up going back to the wife and there's an affirmation of of home and family I mean there's not necessarily any clue in the subject matter of this movie that Murnau was the the queer and wildly inventive and marginalized kind of figure that he was in Hollywood because it is the story of you know heterosexual love story of a man who goes back to his wife but 
there's an openness to, you know, real despair and tragedy mm. that mm-hmm. seems really rare in Hollywood movies at this time. And it made me think about, I'm not sure if it was an influence on or not, but the very next year, 1928, King Vidor makes The Crowd, another of oh, the God, great yes. silent films yeah. of all time. And another movie that is about domestic life, you know, a couple yep. that's sort of having trouble, um, but that goes so much deeper than that and really winds up being a film about work and about alienation and about being American and about so many other things. I'm not saying that, you know, that was a ripoff of Murnau or that the two of them were necessarily working in but um, that's... conjunction, but just that both of those movies were silent films about small domestic stories that managed to reach this incredibly profound level of kind of reflection on, on what it is to be a human being living in the world. Yeah, no, I, you know, I had never put them into conversation in my head like that, but I think you're right that that, I mean, and and that sort of speaks to ideas that were in the air, I think, in this sort of like roaring 20s, this very, you know, uh, uh, hard drinking, a high living time, these, these sort of ideas of of domesticity and faithfulness and all of these ideas were were certainly um, part of the atmosphere as well. I I will confess this, and I'll, I'll own these blind spots as they come up. I had not seen Sunrise before I watched it for this show. And I'm so glad I made you watch it. Honestly, a huge part of why I like doing a project like this is, you know as well as I do, you will see something for work um, more quickly than you will see something you know you should see for pleasure. And so it's almost like the show is an excuse to finally get around to some of the films I've always meant to see. I found out about Sunrise, you know, as in my 20s when I saw the Brownlow and Gill Hollywood miniseries, where, again, it is sort of held aloft as this, like, this was the form coming to its apex. And the, the, what's happening visually in this movie is, you're right, it's just astonishing. The the grace with which the camera moves, the way that these settings are, are used and, and sort of blended into each other. It's just a stunningly beautiful movie. It's very painterly, right? I mean, you remember yeah. it in terms of specific images and the light reflecting off water, and it's you really remember it as a series of looks rather than uh, you know the things that happen between people. There yeah. are hardly any intertitles, and the intertitles are really not important, which is always the mark of a great silent yes. film. I think that happens with The Unknown, which we'll talk about in a minute, yes. the Lon Chaney movie. There's way more subtitles than there need to be, or intertitles in that movie, because really the gestures and the expressions do it, do all the work already. Totally. You know? Totally. All right. Well, uh, then what would you say would be the number three most urgent film to see of 1927? All right. This one was actually sort of a toss up in terms of urgency with uh, with Sunrise, (laughs) because they're both huge, huge moments in film history. And I feel like we would not have have science fiction as we have it without this film, which is Fritz Lang's Metropolis. We wouldn't have Blade Runner. You know, we wouldn't have. I don't know, Lord of the Rings. I don't even know what we else to throw in there. Certainly wouldn't have the Matrix, which on which it's like I think a huge influence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's a dystopia, right? Let's yep. give a little background on, on what Metropolis is and then we can talk about just how it looks and how inventive the visual design mm-hmm. was and, and the, the science fiction thinking in it. But Metropolis is Fritz Lang's big uh, science fiction epic, fantasy epic that he creates with his wife, Thea von Harbu, who wrote a novel 
that it's based on, a novel that was specifically meant to be a film, right? So it was this whole collaborative project they took on together. She writes this very world-building kind of dystopic fantasy novel, knowing that it will be adapted into a film by her husband. She also writes the screenplay for the movie. Uh, it's a huge production. I think it took 17 months to film it or something like that, yeah. you know, um, and just a, a, ma- a massive expenditure of, you know, incredibly exhausting for the actors, as you can understand when you see, you know, the costuming and the special effects in it. And really just drained an enormous amount of resources from uh, the studio that was making it. Um, right. And became a big hit, but also a contested hit in Germany, you know, created um, some somewhat controversial response when it came out because it wasn't mm-hmm. clear in this in this very, very ideological moment that it comes out, the late 1920s, is it a pro-communist movie, right? right. Because it is about, in some ways, about a worker uprising in this factory. Um is it an anti-technology movie or is it a pro-technology movie, right? There's a woman right. who's transformed into a robot who sort of rules over this dystopic factory, but is that a good thing or a bad thing, <laughs> you know? Um, there's yeah. a very strange vision of the future city, which looks to us like, you know, something from H.G. Wells or, I mean, although yeah. it also, like I said, trickles down into modern ways of looking at, at dystopic futures, including Blade mm-hmm. Runner, Um but which Fritz Lang said was based on New York on a, on a trip wow. that he took to New York and, you know, him being so impressed with the skyscrapers and the rapidly changing face of that city that he designed yeah. this art deco fantasy city to to go with it. And then I just have to briefly touch on a little of the after story of the movie. And then I want to hear some of your comments, too. But um, there's just an incredible, incredible story Fritz Lang tells. Who knows how apocryphal it is? But uh, Joseph Goebbels, the, you know, future propaganda minister under Hitler loved this movie and loved Fritz Lang and was very excited by the storytelling possibilities of film, right? As we Mm -hmm. see by him working with Lenny Riefenstahl later on. And a few years after this film came out, it couldn't have been right after because Lang didn't leave Germany right after, but he describes a moment of being called into Goebbels' office and Goebbels sitting down with him and saying... Mr. Long, we're an enormous admirer of your films, and we're wondering if you would like to work for us. Essentially, do you mm. want to go to work for the Ministry of Propaganda and become, you know, a Nazi filmmaker? Which and, is not uh, really an offer. More of a suggestion. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, in the way Long tells it, which is like something from a movie in itself, yeah. is that is that there was a big clock behind Goebbels' head, like out in the city square or something like that. And he was sitting there the entire time as Goebbels is going on about, please join us and make Nazi propaganda, looking at the clock and thinking, will I be able to pack and make it out of here in time to take the last train out of Berlin? Because I can't stay here. He wasn't Jewish either, but he just realized, like, I cannot do my own work and stay here and escape this machine anymore. Um, So after having made a lot of films over the last few years, post-Metropolis, that were sort of subtly anti fascistic while mm-hmm. you know being on the level uh, you know service level acceptable um he fled he fled the country and you know as we know became a hollywood filmmaker made all kinds of like noir classics and turned to a completely different kind of filmmaking in the decades to come and thea von harbu his wife stayed behind and became a nazi and worked yes. with the regime and made films with them so i mean that yeah. in itself is i'm sorry but that's a limited series waiting to happen <laughs> <laughs> no you're right no all i wanted to add well first of all I, I think it's worth noting mike this makes fritz long now the first filmmaker to appear twice on two different lists. I'm fine with that. Ah, what, was the, what was the other movie? 1931 M is on ah, Alex Winter's great. list. That's fantastic. Yes. So yeah, so so he he gave us actually a little little bit of history into that uh, very strange collaboration as well. 
Um, the thing that I weirdly love about Metropolis beyond all of the artistry on screen, which is of course gobsmacking is just that, you know, I'm always fascinated, especially early in film history by these stories of, you know, massive movies that had to be cut down and reformed and things were lost and then found and so forth. And honestly, just from a purely selfish standpoint, I love that pieces of Metropolis were lost and then found because that meant it got theatrical re-releases. And that's the first time I saw Metropolis was in one of those theatrical re-releases at Film Forum when they found that big chunk of footage, I don't know, about a decade ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And it's, it's like... I, I'm sad that it was incomplete for so long, but the, when it gives a movie a second theatrical life like that, I think that's always refreshing and wonderful. Yeah, Metropolis is one of those movies, a little bit like Eric von Stroheim's Greed, where nobody will ever quite know what the original right. was intended to be, you know? And I think it yep. was released, even even in the few years after it came out, it was released in, you know, 150-minute cuts and then 120-minute cuts. And, you know, we just all sort of different, you know, the subtitles were being changed. The music was being changed. There's so many different ways that people saw that movie. And this, I mean, to go back to that bigger question about silent movies that we started off with, this is part of the fun of having yeah. silent movies as one of your kind of sub you know, is that there's a little more friction. There's a little more difficulty in finding exactly what you want. And there's not kind of a sense of like, oh, it's streaming in 10 different places and I can just right. watch the movie. You know, there's a little bit of a sense of fishing. Like, how can I find the best soundtrack, the best cut? How was it meant to be seen? How would people have seen it at the time? You know, right. and there's that beautiful kind of archaeology of putting the film back together. As you, as yes, you exactly. And all those great stories that end up having is like, oh, they found a print in the closet of a Swedish mental hospital. Right. That, Which you know, is still it's a- happening all the time there's so many lost silent films and they'll never all be found because i mean we're talking literally 75 to 80 percent are surmised to be lost yeah but from time to time including in the last 20 years or so you'll hear about yeah grandma's attic happened to contain this never before seen cut or maybe even never before seen entire movie so if there is a lost silent movie you're hankering after you know become an archive never give up (laughs) all right dana what is your number four pick for 1927 All right. So with number four and number five, we're moving a little bit more into the quirky zone. I kind of feel like there were lots of other, including The Jazz Singer, fantastic movie to talk about, really important, really interesting. I've taught it in many a film class, considered putting that on the list. But instead, I went into these slightly more quirkier realms because these are movies you might be more unlikely to come across in a class or or on a a list or something like that. But that point to whole worlds of of silent film that are so interesting. So my next one is going to be a Lon Chaney vehicle called The Unknown from 1927. And um, these first three movies we just talked about, The General, Sunrise, and Metropolis, I've seen so many times over the years or taught in various contexts that I didn't specifically rewatch them for our conversation. Uh, But The Unknown, I did go back and rewatch all the way through. And my Lord, what an utterly sick and twisted and perverse movie that is. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's... It's the pre-freaks, you know, like it, it pairs so well. It's it's so clearly pointing the way towards that in Browning's future, you know. Right. I mean, yeah, I was going to mention that. Todd Browning, the director and, and writer of this movie, is best known for Freaks, which is this cult movie. I mean, now it's become a cult classic that he made in 1932, um, which probably if you've heard of anything about Todd Browning, you've heard of Freaks. And, you know, the big kind of frisson of Freaks is that he made it with actual circus freaks. And I use that word advisedly. It's the word, you know, that he uses in the movie. But, you know, yeah. actual sideshow carnival circus performers who were all different sizes, shapes, like differently abled people 
cast as pretty much themselves or versions of themselves in the movie. And it tells the story of a romance between a young woman at the circus who is, you know, not from this freaks community with somebody who is. Um, I mean, it's completely worth seeing. You'll have many chances to see Freaks because it is kind of a cult classic and cult favorite. Um, But I wanted to put the unknown in there specifically because thinking about 1927 and all the things that were in flux in that year, Lon Chaney was just at a real height of his career right around 1927. I mean, he'd been doing big things and been hugely admired uh, for this kind of role, you know, for horror roles and... Uh, what would you call them? Sort of extreme acting roles, you know? Yeah. Since... Well, and his chameleonic nature was like was sort of his calling card, right? Right. And I mean, the really extraordinary thing about him is that he did his own makeup, right? right? That was sort of part of the package. He imagined the characters completely from the ground up. It's sort of like imagine Boris Karloff, right, from the Frankenstein movies, but if he created that character from the ground up, you know, like right. he didn't get it from Mary Shelley and he didn't have some makeup man figure out the flat head and the screws in the neck and all that stuff. He envisioned the entire thing from the right. ground up. Like what Cheney was that you really see to great advantage in the unknown is is this ground up creator of characters, you know? And so this, uh, this person that he envisions in the unknown is just such a layered, it's such a layered, layered movie about, I mean, Mm -hmm. disability and performance, right. And, uh, and deceit and truth and lying and so many other things. So. And foot acting. A lot of foot acting. <laughs> Absolutely. In that movie. Well, okay, so we have to we have to set that up a bit to make it clear. So the character that Cheney plays, I almost feel like Jason, you should take over the plot summary because this is such a you kind of movie. I know that you love kind of perverse cult movies, and I had a feeling you would dig the unknown. So can you I briefly did. set up the premise of this movie? You know, I mean, it's I I I <laughs> the the ease the the simplest way to put it is you know he is a a circus freak who has who who fakes. Uh, that he has no arms and that he uses has to use his feet to do everything and falls in love with uh, Joan Crawford, the, a young and v- vibrant and gorgeous Joan Crawford. Um, and uh, in order to, to properly um, romance her, determines that he must remove his arms actually uh, and it goes poorly. That's that's the that's the the quickest <laughs> plot summary that I will but that I will. There's a give. lot. There was a there's a lot going on in that movie yes. that I and you know first of all I was like how is there another Todd Browning circus movie that I'm right. I haven't seen ten times I was, but you know first of all if you can shoot a bow and arrow and throw knives with your feet like I don't care if I can see your arm right that's your arms that's <laughs> impressive enough but yes. He he. So he he has his arms removed because the girl he's in love with, you know, makes this the first twenty minutes of the movie. Like most of her dialogue is about how she's being pawed by men her whole life, and right. she hates it. And she hates men, and she hates men's hands. And and why doesn't God make all the men and make their hands go away? And like, <laughs> and I don't recall. I mean, there's I don't recall that sort of perspective. Yeah. At that time, I mean, is that, I, you know, obviously I haven't seen all the silent movies and, and like we said already, a lot of them are lost. But to me, that seemed like a really unique, it was, and, and it, was, it was taken seriously by the film. Right. Not just sort of as a, a a very very weird plot device for this guy to go and sort of get a, get to have right. his arm surgically removed, but it seemed to me like her saying that was taken seriously by the film in a way that in a lot of other movies, from then to now, that would sort of be dismissed. 
um, yeah. as a concern or she would be sort of treated, it would sort of be treated as a trauma that everybody had to deal with right. as opposed to sort of being taken seriously. Well, I mean, Todd Browning and Lon Chaney worked together a lot of times. They made, I think they made around a dozen films together. And very tragically, Lon Chaney didn't have that long to live when this movie right. was, was made. He only made one sound movie, which he was fantastic in. He had a great voice that went perfectly with uh. his persona. He would obviously have been one of the people, like Joan Crawford, who made a very successful transition from silent to sound. But he died of throat cancer very suddenly in the early 30s mm. after having made only one sound film. So another of that kind of swan song elements that I feel about these 27 movies, these 1927 movies, is that, you know, Lon Chaney, at the height of his talents, is just about to be cut down and he's his prime. And he's just such a... Rewatching it today, I was just so blown away by... I mean, in some ways, it's a campy movie. You know, it, it takes the, the premise seriously. It's a melodrama yeah. that wants you to care about the characters and to be involved. But it also has this wonderful, you know, something that almost seems like it belongs in, like, the Hammer Gothic films with yeah. Christopher Lee or something. <laughs> this kind of grand guignol, you know, just glorying in the absolute absurdity of the concept, especially... And I knew you'd love this, Jason. The mid-film reveal that... It, the fake arms that he has hidden, yes. right? Because he's hiding his true arms while he plays this armless man in the circus. That one of these arms actually actually has two thumbs on the hand. <laughs> and so it's like a, defor a fake deformity that when it's revealed is hiding a real deformity. And the real deformity will, of course, reveal him as the man who strangled right. Joan Crawford's father. Because all she saw from her obstructed view was that a double-thumbed hand was Wild. strangling her father to death. So it has that combination of just utterly extreme almost john waters level camp right yeah um with like real melodramatic heft and incredible acting from cheney yeah. i mean i was just no one is no on one a is straight level right yeah. i mean he's not winking at it at all he's he's and playing the soulfulness the the humor the scariness the sexiness he's playing all of that just completely straight he is just everything i adore lon cheney yeah well, and I have to say, too, this this one, again, was also new to me. And so I, I, I so appreciate the recommendation. This was, I think, my first Joan Crawford silent. And I was really taken with her performance, with what a, you know, we think of her so so much for, for mostly, you know, most of, unfortunately, the work that has endured was laid in the career, which is which is great and which is fun and so forth. Um, and, you know, even even the talky stuff. But she had a real naturalism to the way she carried herself for the silent camera that in some of the moments in this film reminded me of what I like so much about Louise Brooks as an actor in silent movies. She has that sort of naturalism that was not really typical of that period. I think she's really good in it too. Yeah, it's interesting you connect her with Louise Brooks. I hadn't thought of that, but both of them have that quality of sort of being outside of time, right? I mean, in yeah. their silent movies, like yes. they're wonderful silent actresses. They can communicate a lot through just gesture and facial expression, um, but they don't seem to be of their time, even though they both play, played flappers, which is the most right. of its time 20s thing it could be. I mean, what Joan was known for at the time before sound came in is like, she's the party girl, she's the flapper. Right. If you if you need someone to play the kind of dissipated, you know, woman in a movie who's who is going to have to sacrifice herself so the nice woman can get redeemed, Joan Crawford <laughs> was your dissipated woman. And so yes. she must have been really happy to get this role in The Unknown because it gives her a chance to do something really different. And she plays this insane character who's afraid of 
hands, right? Which in our Me Too moment, we can interpret that in this way. Like she's been horribly yeah. treated by men and she's processing that trauma. But she play, also plays it very literally. Like things at the end of people's arms, I hate them, right? <laughs> and she has to overcome that fear and you see that happening in the movie too. So there's this kind of literal allegory about sexuality, like hands, beware the hands, you know, only yes. the handless man can be loved. And it's just... There's so much going on. I mean, this is another movie that just begs to be taught in some kind of class about film semiology, right? Absolutely. All right. And then let's wrap it up with your number five movie of 1927. Dana, what do you got? Okay, so this is Seventh Heaven, the Frank Borzaghi romance, I guess you would call it, a kind of a La Boheme style romance yeah. uh, between a couple that, like Lon Chaney and Todd Browning, would work together a lot in the years mm. after that. So it's Janet Gaynor and Charles Farrell playing these um, these star-crossed lovers in Paris, one of those great Hollywood Parises that's entirely constructed you know, on the, on the lot. I believe it was the Fox lot. Um, of course. And it's it's high romanticism, but I think I put it on there for a few reasons. For one thing, Janet Gaynor is a huge deal in 1927, yeah. right? I mean, yes. we see we see her in two movies just in my list. She's the, she's the right. the nice girl in Sunrise. She's the woman who gets left behind, and then and then it, it, her husband comes back in the end. And she's this kind of waif like, you know, um, I don't know what you'd call her, but yeah, she's the manic pixie dream girl of, of Seventh <laughs> Heaven. And she's really great in both roles, and they're very typical kind of Janet Gaynor roles. And sure. she was in another movie, I believe, the next year um, with Charles Farrell. Same, you know, same romantic pairing uh, called Street two Angel. Is that right? Street Angel? That sounds right. She was in two. They were in two movies together in 1931 that were in the our, our box office rundown for that episode as well. They just they worked together a yeah. lot. Yeah, you got to think of them as almost like the the, the Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. Yes. You know, they weren't screwball, but but they were this kind of pairing that people loved to see. They were also a couple in real life, so they had mm. you know that Brangelina element. For over those few years <laughs> in the late twenties, they were also dating in real life, although they never married. So there's there's that element to it. Um, and I just had to mention, because the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is just coming into being during this period. Initially, as I talk about in my book, as a kind of um, labor negotiating organization and right. a way to kind of make sure that guilds didn't get too much power within the studio system, it did not start off as an awards giving body. Um, but it became that in, I think, 1929 were the first Academy Awards given. And then there was this unique moment where Janet Gaynor got the first Best Actress Academy Award for three different roles. She got it for um, Sunrise, for Seventh Heaven, and for Street Angel, that other movie, Borzegi movie that we just mentioned. And that never yeah. happened again. It was the one time where, you know, one actress was crowned for three separate roles um, at, at one time. So that seemed worth noting at the moment. She also went on later to, to be the first... Um, Star is Born, you know, the first Vicky Lester right. in, in A Star is Born in 1937. So although nobody talks about her now, Janet Gaynor was a really big Huge. rising star in 27 and would go on to be a star for the next decade or more. Was the whole three movies thing just because it was sort of the first year of the awards or... Yeah, and they were on it that. It never that... happened again. Like, explain that. Can you explain? Is there, I think is, there a... is there an explanation? I mean, a rule was put in place after that. You know, I presume mm. because it's it, otherwise people would be making a bunch of different movies at once trying to get. I'm not exactly sure what have the argument Oscar would have been. Year, yeah. but, but the very yeah. first year the Oscars were awarded, if you look at how it all went, was obviously a little bit of a ragbag situation because movies from several different years were awarded all at once. 
you know, um, there was also this category that only existed for that first Oscars that was something like unique and artistic picture versus best picture. And, and that unique and artistic picture was Sunrise. So this is a perfect transition, Dana, into the next segment of the show. Uh, we're going to queue up for awards and box office. Sell out with me, oh yeah. Sell out with me tonight. Mike is going to walk us through the Oscar winners in that first year that were from the year 1927, some of which we, we just discussed. This also was, a, I think, part of that thing that we talked about in the 1931 episode, where for the first few years, the calendar they were on was, was not a a calendar year, but more of like a school calendar year where it was running from like August through the following July. So like you mentioned, we have films from different years being honored in the same Academy Awards, but this was the first Academy Awards ceremony. And Mike, uh, what were the big winners that year? Well, the, the, the unusual uh, category that you mentioned, Dana, was best artistic quality. Mm -hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, they could bring that shit back. <laughs> uh, and that was won by Sunrise, as you mentioned. Um, and then there was Best Production, which was won by Wings. Uh, and I think that's I think it's really interesting that that distinction happened and that there it, it feels like I don't know. Everyone always talks about Wings being the first Best Picture winner, but it's it's not. It's the first Best Production winner. And there was this other prize that feels like it had the same sort of value. And I don't know about you, but I am much happier considering Sunrise to be the first movie to win the Oscar for Best Picture than, than Wings. How do you land on Wings, Dana? I mean, I, I almost put Wings on my list because I feel like it's a, another movie that's really important to film history that it you is. often talk about without actually seeing. You know, if you, <laughs> if you take a film class, you'll often make that note, you know, that piece of trivia. Right. Wing, Wings is the first Best Picture Oscar winner, which, you know, as Mike says, is somewhat misleading in itself because it was a bifurcated award at that time. Um yeah, Wings is much more like a movie that would win the Oscar now. You know, I mean, yes. obviously translated <laughs> yes. into the sensibility of that time, but like, it's a war movie, it's an action movie, yeah. it's got cool special effects, it's got big stars, Clara Bow, you know, who was you know the hot property in, in the box office at the time. It's a lot of fun. It's a better movie than you might expect. I mean, it feels a little bit dated. It doesn't have the kind of simplicity and purity and beauty that, that Sunrise does. But, you know, it holds up pretty well as a fun watch. And it's got that famous shot later quoted by Ryan Johnson, right, in, in The Last Jedi of, of a camera moving through a, a bar yes. full of people with lots of sort of queer coded couples at the bar. It's kind of interesting. I mean, it's a really fascinating movie to watch. I, if I were teaching a, a class on this moment, the transition from silent to sound, I would love to teach Wings and also The Jazz Singer because those were movies that everybody would have seen, you know, and that right. you very much can capture what the popular taste was. But do they hold up as movies that you're utterly enthralled by in 2022? Not really. <laughs> right. Mike, what else did well at the at that first Oscars that year from 27? Emil Jannings uh, won Best Actor for both The Way of All Flesh from 27 and the 1928 movie The Last Command. Uh, Janet Gaynor, who we've talked about, won Best Actress for Seventh Heaven and Sunrise, as well as the 1928 movie Angel. Street, Street Angel. Angel. Sorry. Yep. And uh, Frank Bor Borzaghi. I've mis I've pronounced his name every possible way. That's the right way. I'm pretty episodes. sure that's right. <laughs> uh, one best director for Seventh Heaven. So Seventh Heaven was, you know, was obviously getting some attention. Uh, well deserved. And I think you can see, you know, the one thing we didn't really talk about, but the the, the craft of that movie 
is pretty striking. Like, you know, some of those, like as a technical achievement, like those long walks up to the attic and stuff like that. Like I, you really do, you know, that is, it's a, it's a considerable technical sort of, sort of a dazzling directorial thing. I'm not surprised that he won that first best director prize. Yeah. Oh, it's a movie where the sets and the set design and the use of the production are a big part of what make it work so well, you know, and it was actually based on a play. And I feel, I feel like it does a really good job of moving what could have been a theatrical setting into this fake looking, but still utterly interesting and visually beautiful Paris that, that he creates. Yes. I have something yes. to say about the, the stair ascents too, just as long as we keep on talking about Keaton. And this is something that the film scholar, cameraman, Peter, mm, cameraman the stairs, remember? Yes. 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 I, well, I have to shout out here the, the <laughs> film historian and critic, Peter Labuza, because he's the person who noticed this in a screening of seventh heaven that I think we saw at the, um, at the silent film festival in San Francisco. He mm. was the one who said, Hey, those shots with the cutaway building, right? Yep. Where they're ascending up to quote unquote seventh heaven, like the Garrett, the kind of poor but wonderful Garrett that the Charles Farrell character lives in. They're they're utterly spoofed in Cameraman in that famous yeah. scene where there's a cutaway building, right? That Keaton's yep. a boarding house that Keaton's character is living in. And we have this great gag of him running up and down the stairs trying to get the phone, right? I mean, yes. it's the year after. Cameraman comes out in 1928. Seventh Heaven was a big hit. Everybody would have been talking about it the year before. So clearly, Keaton, as he often did, was pulling a topical joke and spoofing something, you know, in another current movie in sort of a, a comic realm, which is something that had that. gotten by me after many, many, many viewings of the cameraman so you know yeah. that, that that kind of proves that when you're exploring that silent film world the more you watch the more it enriches your other viewing well and the thing i love about that too is that it is a spoof of that but you also it's also a great gag if you don't know that right. what it's what it's based on like i i love that sequence before i had seen this movie but it, it's it's even richer and even funnier if you have that sort of context to it oh absolutely um, all right, Mike, what what did well at the box office in 1927? Uh, not a lot of surprises on this list, but uh, but what, what do we got here? Uh, Wings took, uh, if not best picture, they they made the most money with $3.8 million. Uh, the Huge Jazz hit. Singer, which, you know, obviously was, I mean, as we've talked about, is still very well known, made $1.9 in second place. Seventh Heaven, uh, which uh, I don't know if they got a boost from the Oscars two years later, but um, <laughs> Seventh Heaven got third place with 1.75 million. Number four was King of Kings with 1.5 million. Cecil B. DeMille's first version of his biblical epic. So he was, he had a sense that that would make him some money. Turns <laughs> out he was right. Yeah. Uh, number five is the patent leather kid, which I've never seen, but I've never, I had never heard of the patent leather kid. But I, I like the title. I'm, I'm interested yeah. in the title already. One point two million dollars. It's a boxing slash World War One movie starring Richard Bartlemus. Is it yes. Bartlemus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Bartlemus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, who was struggling right then to redefine what he was going to be as sound was coming in. Richard Bartlemus, because he had been a D.W. Griffith hero and kind of a big handsome man of the early silent period and was nice. frantically trying to figure out how he was going to age into a sound career, which he never did. He was one of the real casualties of that crossover. Man, now we got to see the patent leather kid, Bailey. I, mean. I know. Uh, and in sixth, tied in sixth place with one million dollars was Metropolis and It, which starred Clara Bow, who was known as the It Girl, the which it Girl. is where we still literally are using that phrase. <laughs> I mean, not as often now, but it yeah. still comes up now. And I yeah. don't know 
if people realize that's almost a hundred years old at this point, but she really was, you know, the that famous in 1927. Yeah, I watched this one for the New York book because it's it's set in New York and and it had a few sort of random shots in it. I loved it. I thought it was really fun, really fast and 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 snappy and of of its time and I think she's I mean, you see how she got that reputation cuz she's uh, she's incredibly fun to watch and sexy and interesting, and I I really enjoyed it. Totally. Oh yeah, this is. I mean, this is all inspiring me to teach a class on film in 1927 because there's all these movies like Jazz Singer, like It, right? That that were massively popular at the time and that show us so much about how popular taste was changing, right? Yeah. And that also are very likely to, as you say, kind of revamp your opinion of someone. Clara Bow, who we might think of as sort of the boop boopy doo girl, you know, that she's like a dated right. Cupid doll type or something. But she has this Brooklyn toughness. She's almost like a Natasha Leone of her day yes. or something like that. Good call. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we should we should talk briefly since it did come up at the top of that list um, about the jazz singer as a movie, because it's so easy to. Uh, to talk about it as, uh, uh, you know, as you said, as a piece of film history, as this, you know, important technical achievement, as this sort of hinge moment. I was surprised when I watched, because I watched it a few times for the book, because it's it's one of the the sort of the big ones in there. It's it is a str- it's such a strange hybrid. Like what I was not expecting when I first saw it was just how how uh, how oddly the silent and sound. F- pieces fit together yeah. to the extent that there are even like there's a point in it where he's doing a song and you're hearing the song on the soundtrack and then people are talking about him while he's singing and their dialogue is in inner titles which i was like wait okay so what the hell kind of movie is this it's a really peculiar film yeah no there's that hybridization and then there's the fact that it is at once this movie about jewish assimilation right this kind mm-hmm. of this really kind of deep story about this, you know, Cantor's son who runs away to go to Broadway and kind of a, you know, a, a tragedy of immigration, you know, combined with this like blackface spectacle. Yeah. I mean, it's also just like it's such a patchwork of, of what entertainment forms were at that time, yes. you know, between like all the vaudeville forms that are being overlaid on sort of like the radio style singing that Al Jolson does because he was known mm-hmm. at that point for radio you know, and then attempting to also be just like a normal movie that you would watch in the theater. And the fact that there were several years, it wasn't just the jazz singer, but there were several years that these hybrid productions were big successes, you know, and you'd think that people would sort of say like, okay, give me a sound movie or a silent movie, but I don't want to see this psycho movie where a guy sings a song and sound and then it goes back to silent and yeah, there's inner titles. And, but just the novelty of having sound in there at all, took movies so incredibly far, you know, and that to me is another part of what I can't help experiencing as a silent film fan as part of the tragedy of this period. You know, it's not that I sort of feel like sound should never have come along and we should all look backward or something like that. It's just that that replacement happened so incredibly fast, you know, that, um, that there was a moment where essentially if a movie had sound, no matter how poorly constructed or nonsensical it was that was the thing that people wanted to see and it was drawing them into the theater and i bet a lot of great you know careers were dashed at that moment that wouldn't have had to be if there hadn't been such a commercial imperative you know to start replacing silent with sound so so very quickly but yeah i mean i almost feel like when you when you watch or you teach the the jazz singer which i think is really important to do even though it's a hard movie to get through in some ways Mm -hmm. you're you're really um, 
you're just dipping like a kind of a test, you know, like a, a litmus test stick into what culture was at that moment, you know, what American pop culture was in 1927. And it's not always pretty, you know, yeah. but it's yeah. utterly, utterly fascinating and necessary, I think, just like Birth of a Nation, you know, yeah. painful to watch, needs to be contextualized. You know, we shouldn't have it, whatever, showing at every single street corner or classroom without explanation. <laughs> but right. um, but it's such an important and painful and fascinating part of American film history. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Well, let's uh, let's do a little lightning round. Let's uh, let's see how we do uh, with just a, a few more of the films of 1927. If you've seen them, if you haven't, pass on, and we'll we'll go to the next one. But some of the some of these are interesting, and some of these, uh, when I was looking up, I was like, oh, I'd kind of like to see that. We must have uh, we must of course begin our lightning round with the other Buster Keaton release of 1927, College. Where do you land on that one, Dana? I mean, I have a whole chapter in my book about this. I think that college, <laughs> and it's not just me, I think it's generally accepted. I think college is one of Keaton's weakest independently produced films. You know, I mean, he made much worse films once he was at MGM and under other people's creative control. But while he was at the Buster Keaton studio making the movies that he purportedly chose to make, he didn't make many movies that were less like him than college, yeah. um, which because it's still Keaton and because it's still, you know, full of great set pieces and really good gags. Uh, and it's short, you know, like how, how much can you hate a movie when it just briskly gets through that many gags and I don't know, slightly right. over an hour. Um, it's, it's not a place that I would send people to start with Buster Keaton because right. Right. what he was doing at that moment, precisely because of the general, his previous film, the general, you know, had, had really busted the budget, not busted the box office, not been a big yep. hit with critics or at the box office. Now we consider it this genius masterpiece, but it was considered a flop at the time, basically. And his producer and brother-in-law, Joe Skank, came along and said, look, <laughs> you need to set your sights lower. You need to make something that turns a profit. And you need to find a script that is going to be crowd-pleasing. And at the time, college movies were the rage. You know, Harold Lloyd had made one. Everybody was making them. Um, college itself, and I get into this in the, in the book as well, was kind of undergoing this, this big moment. You know, more people, women especially, were enrolling in college than ever had before. And it was just a hot kind of property. So... Yeah, I see why College was a hit. It's definitely a movie of its time. It's got one or two beautiful gag sequences that make it worthwhile. And you get to see Buster Keaton at his physical prime doing some beautiful stuff. But is it an important Keaton movie in the context of everything else he was doing at the time? Yeah, not really. <laughs> yeah, the thing that struck me when I saw College was that it was, you know, I had seen um, The Freshman recently. It's like, oh, it's Keaton doing a Harold Lloyd movie. To that end, Harold Lloyd had a movie out in 1927 called The Kid Brother. Uh, have you seen that one? Thoughts on that one? Yes. I mean, it's one, I haven't seen it in a while. I saw it way at the beginning of my book research, which given right. how long this book took was a while back. <laughs> but I remember thinking of it as one of Lloyd's strongest movies. I mean, in yeah. general, Lloyd was at a really good point at this moment, yep. you know, from the mid twenties to the late twenties. And, uh, he had some trouble when sound came in and didn't quite know how to adjust to it. But in the late 70s, 20s, he could do whatever he wanted. You know, he was a powerful and very wealthy filmmaker at that point and was working with some really creative minds. And I think if I had to choose just two Harold Lloyd movies to see, two or three, Kid Brother would probably be among the top ones. Good. Great. Todd Browning had another movie out that year, uh, uh, also very busy in addition to Buster, called The Show, uh, which I have not seen. Have you seen The Show? No, I'm sorry to pass on this one. No I believe worries. that's a Lon Chaney collaboration, too. And oh. for all my passionate love of Lon Chaney, I've probably only seen about three or four of his movies. So one of the things that this inspired me to do, our conversation, Jason, is go down a big Lon Chaney rabbit hole. <laughs> so maybe I'll watch the show. 
Sounds good. Napoleon, Abel Gantz's giant Napoleon came out in 1927. Yes, I have such a great memory, and again, very long ago, of seeing Napoleon. But when it was first restored, I believe yeah. I was in high school. I was really just like a junior cinephile at that point. And Abelgans' Napoleon was being shown as it was meant to be shown as this triptych. I mean, it's still really inventive when you think about it. It was like screened on these three screens that were sort of set up at angles to each other on the stage so that it's this wow. stereophonic thing where this, you know, huge war action kind of moves from screen to screen. I think that it was also colorized or tinted in some way and mm -hmm. had live music. This would have been, you know, I guess in the late 80s, early 90s or something like right, that. Right, right. And that's because that was such an overwhelming, incredible experience. That's the one time I've seen Napoleon because the idea of seeing it on a small screen or even on a normal screen somehow, it was just not the same as getting to see this, you know, incredible triptych extravaganza. I have to confess the reason I haven't seen it is because I keep waiting for them. You will hear occasionally that they're restoring it and that they're going to do a re-release like that. And I want to see it. It's one of the few movies that it's like, I have to see that on the big screen. I can't watch it at home for the first time. Um, also in 1927, across the ocean, uh, a young filmmaker named Alfred Hitchcock had a very busy year. There were four Hitchcock releases in 1927. Uh, the Lodger, The Ring, Downhill, and The Mountain Eagle. Dana, have you seen any of these, any of the, 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 the Hitchcock quartet of 27? I know I've seen The Lodger because that's yes. that's one of the ones that that's actually one... gets shown in yes. retrospectives and things like that. I mean, in general, I feel like whenever I'm watching British Hitchcock, with a couple exceptions, I don't quite feel like Hitchcock has come into his own yet. I'm Somebody's yeah. going to write me and just say, you're absolutely insane. Black and white British Hitchcock is the only Hitchcock. But <laughs> to, to me, it's after he's an expatriate and it's after he's playing with Hollywood tropes and using Hollywood actors that I start to see the style that I recognize and yeah. love. Um, yeah. But, but, those, but those early British black and white Hitchcocks definitely do have something you know they've got like yes. a that that incredibly dark and and, and ice-hearted worldview you know yes. that helps to form and everything the bleak humor and later. some of them yeah yeah big time no i think uh, uh the lodger i think and uh blackmail are the two that i think are are interesting in terms of seeing who he was going to become of seeing that sort of embryonic form of the hitchcock style but there is some fun too in seeing some you know seeing him trying to make these very atypical Hitchcock movies just because he hadn't figured out who he was yet, which I think is fun. Um, and then we'll close it out with uh, Joseph von Sternberg's the, uh, or so not the Joseph von Sternberg's underworld released in 1927. Is that when you have seen Dana? I don't think I've seen that. I mean, when I think Joseph von Sternberg, I think of his big collaborations with Marlene and Dietrich, right? I mean, those right. early those early sound costume pictures he made with the incredible costumes, and those are extraordinary. There was just a box set of those that came out with Criterion. But this yep. is something earlier than that that I, I think I'm not familiar with. Are you guys? Uh, I, I saw it uh, when I went through my very early gangster, because it is, it's an early sort of crime film for him, which is fun. But it's 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 interesting again it's like hitchcock he wasn't von sternberg yet he hadn't found that that particular style yet i do okay i said i was going to close it. i want to do one more not even to talk about the film because i don't know if you've seen it uh harry langdon's his first flame came out in 1927 i'm just curious to hear your general thoughts on langdon as someone who has written so extensively about silent comedy 
Yeah, Langdon's such a weird figure. I think he's one silent comic who never comes up in my book, although I did watch some of his movies in preparation for it. That one I don't remember, and that would have been a later one, so that might have been one of the ones. I mean, I gather, and maybe this is part of why I put off watching things about him, that his late career gets kind of sad, you know, Mm. that that he wasn't sure what to do with this extremely unique persona he had of the sort of overgrown child, right? The man I mean, baby, yeah. Right, and and someone who isn't just innocent or naive in the way that a Keaton character or a Lloyd character could be, but is really kind of regressively baby-like, right? Yes. And who couldn't possibly exist in the adult world. <laughs> it's a world. weird character. Yeah, it's extremely twisted, but it's actually kind of courageous, you know, that he kept yeah. on playing that character for so long. And I think that when that character dated, it dated really badly. You know, it's the yeah. kind of character that once you are milking it or you're aging out of it, it's just really not going to work at all. And I'm not saying that that movie is that, but given the date, it seems like he might have been moving toward that. I mean, Langdon is one of those. I kind of don't recommend that you start your silent film comedy journey with Langdon because you'll think that it's all so weird and twisted that you're not going to want to continue going down that journey. But once you're comfortable with the 20s, which as we've seen, even in talking about, you know, movies like The Unknown, like they they're going to be stepping on modern sensibilities every other way you look right i mean if it isn't like blackface or some kind of ethnic stereotyping you know it's going to be some weird sexist thing or some you know what we would now consider to be something really offensive and twisted and langdon's whole character in a way is something yeah. like that you know but um but that also is what makes it such such rich viewing i think so i would probably send people to earlier langdon's but yeah he has to be a part of your your silent film vocabulary there we go. All right. There's our lightning round. Dana, thank you so much for that. That was um, a joy. <laughs> let's talk real quick uh, before we call it a night. Um, listeners who are not familiar with Cameraman, um, what is... I this Like I said, I love this book dearly. I love it with my whole heart um, because it's very much the way that I like to approach film history uh, and, and biography. It's not a straightforward cradle to grave this followed this followed this biography what is the 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 sort of the 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 premise and the structure that you used to tell this particular story um yeah thank you for saying it's not a biography because i want people to know that going in that you know if it was the only book you'd read ever about buster keaton i think that would be fine it's not as if you need to have (laughs) more background or have to read another biography to understand what it's doing but yeah it's not a soup to nuts treatment of an artist's life you know, excluding the context that that life occurred in. The way that I kind of think of it, I kind of finally now, six months after it's out, have an elevator pitch for it. (laughs) And the, the elevator pitch is something like, this is a cultural history of Buster Keaton's lifespan. And his lifespan, mm. the years that he lived, was um, 1895, the year of his birth, also the year of the birth of cinema, traditionally celebrated, right? That's when the Lumiere yep. brothers first projected movies to an audience. So 1895, he's born, and he dies in 1966. So that's only a 70-year lifespan. It's not hugely long, but think about how much American history, world history, technology, entertainment, you know, social relations, how much the world changed between 1895 and 1966. So what I try to do in the book essentially is use Keaton, his life and his work, his incredibly interesting life, right? And his mm-hmm. his utterly unique, um, you know, work that he produced in, in film and on the stage um, as a way to look at phenomena 
in 20th century history that were occurring around him. In some cases, things that happened to him or things that he himself helped to pioneer. In some cases, just, you know, really the ambiance that was swirling around him, right? Like the First World War, which he served right. in but didn't exactly fight in. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the shift from vaudeville to movies, which he was a big part of. He made that jump as a child vaudeville star who became a movie star. And then from movies to TV, right? So he had this kind of fallow period of not being in movies, but then became a big figure in the early golden age of TV. So talk about that a bit. Yeah, essentially what I'm sort of trying to do is trace 20th century history as it interweaves with the life and work of Buster Keaton. Yeah, yeah. And well, you know, and what I love, one of the things that I love so much about it is you know there's a uh, there's uh, there's no hesitation to sort of go down little rabbit holes as they occur and I learned a lot about Buster Keaton and a lot about movies and a lot about you know the the early age of television and all that but I also learned about a lot of things I did not crack open the book expecting to learn about I did not expect to learn so much about the Child's Restaurant franchise <laughs> um, but now I know about that and like Mike and I did an audio commentary for this movie Born to Win this George Siegel movie from the 70s and there's a scene where there's a child's in the background and ah, I was like fantastic. hey I should have put that in <laughs> I shouted you out on the commentary I said I know all about child because of Dana's <laughs> book so it's full of you know I I think it really complements the sense of the modern reader who is who reads books but who also like goes online and clicks articles through wikipedia and like is oh well i'm interested in this thing what tell me some more about that what the hell is that like that is something that i haven't really seen done in a book before or at least done as well and as smoothly as it is in this book while never seeming to digress too far from from the overall focus and and i commend you for that because i can't imagine it was easy Oh, that makes me really happy. There's a, um, a there's a comment that I joke about. I mean, it doesn't really get to me, but there was some uh, Amazon review of the book that had oh, a boy. negative comment. In general, the Amazon reviews have been super generous, but there was some guy who had a critique that was that made me laugh. That was talking about the dubious tangents. Like this book has some value, but but what's with up with these all these dubious tangents? And somehow those two words, you know. Anyway, so yeah, if you if you're into dubious tangents, this this yeah. is the book for you. I was gonna say. If you didn't already have such a good Twitter handle, at uh, Dubious Tangents would be a pretty pretty great one. Speaking of which, if people would like to follow you on Twitter, where will they find you? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good way to sort of see what I'm writing about week to week for Slate, etc. And uh, and my handle comes from a Buster Keaton movie, actually. So yeah. my handle is The High Sign. So that's T-H-E-H-I-G-H-S-I-G-N, which is also the title of um, a 1920 movie that was uh, Buster Keaton's first short film. A, a, a brilliantly inventive and wonderfully funny short, one of my favorites of his. Uh, anywhere else that people should follow you or look for your work or or keep an eye out for things? I mean, just Slate. If you go to Slate and you read a movie review, I probably wrote it. I do, <laughs> I do a couple podcasts there a week, at least one per week, sometimes two per week. Um, I'm also on Instagram, although I constantly forget that I'm there, also at the high sign. Um, so yeah, but I think, I, as you know, Jason, unfortunately, Twitter is my main social media yep. addiction. So the place you're most likely to find me and also find you know information about the book or book events I'm doing, etc., would be uh, the Twitter at the high sign. Great. Dana, thank you so much for coming on here to, uh, today and talking with us. I, I learned a lot, and like I said, I saw some, some wonderful movies on your recommendation, and so appreciate that. Oh, great. It was such a delight. Yeah, I knew you would love these. The Unknown in particular, I chose yes. it because I knew that your sick sensibility <laughs> would really, really dig it. 
nailed it. Nailed it. All right. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was a very good year.